what the market says you're worth and what it's going to take you to come here and deliver your best. So part of this, and a lot of folks listening here may you know, struggle forever. We've been told, oh, money's not the driver. Well, that's not true. The most talented people, and let's be clear, you've got to define what talent is and how it operates and how productive it is, efficient, et cetera. But those people are priceless and you've got to treat them that way. And it starts with compensation, which in most of the world is like, well, no, but if we pay this person this, that the person who's an accomplished job has to make this. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Johnny C. Taylor Jr. Johnny, thanks for doing this. So glad to be here with you today. Air quotes here. So you're CEO at SHRM. For people don't know the Society for HR Management, author of new book, Reset. And you've done a lot of interesting things in your career. I, I want to go into a few of them, but let's start off with uh, letting people know, know what the new book is about. Yeah. So the new book was, interestingly, the best way to tell you what it's about is to tell you in some ways what it isn't. So in about, oh, April of 2020. We are all locked at home two weeks in and starting Friday, March 13th. We all remember that day, right? When the world essentially came to a grind, like halt, right? And I said, it would be really interesting to write a book where I chronicled what happened at that time, what we thought was going to be 21 or 30 days, like how differently, what what was our experience, our lived experiences, working from home, et cetera. And so I thought it would be really interesting to write a book called The Great Pause. And because the government told us 21 or 30 days, we'd be back to normal if we just shut it all down and we could control this damn virus. Well, three months into it, it became really clear about May, June, that this was not going to be a quick fix. Even though we were in the summer, there were still you know, high numbers of cases of infection and people were dying. And I said, you know, this is a different thing going on. And it's actually a reset. So what motivated me to do it is, you know, when you push the pause button, you pick up just where you left off. And I think that's what would have occurred for all of us when we think about work and workers and workplace and just generally our mindset as human beings if this had been short term. But because it has lasted, here we are 20 months later, and we're still experiencing it. This We're not in a post-pandemic world. Reset became the product. And it was how we literally are going to essentially start over in so many ways. So that's what prompted the book. And that's what it's about when you think about the workplace and what leaders are having to confront the level of change that we experienced in a matter of a couple of weeks, like literally the overwhelming majority of your employers just spent employees in a, in a knowledge-based economy now we're working at home. And how do you manage? How do you recruit? How do you fire? How do you develop? There was just a lot going on and none of us were were tooled to do that. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into a bunch of these issues, especially obviously, you know, the show's innovation and leadership. I want I want to talk about your thoughts on that and the, you know, yes. what it takes what it takes or what you guys are seeing as the trends when you really want that the highest level of talent to want to come innovate at your company. But I think yes. for one second, we should give people just a little bit of background, you know, I think there's probably a lot of folks that don't realize like what a powerhouse SHRM is. Can you talk about how many members you guys have and how long you've been around and just some of the stats there? Yeah, so we were we've been around since 1948. So we're pretty we're we're 73 or so years old, based in the Washington DC area. But the best way to describe us is if you're a lawyer, you belong to the American Bar Association. If you're a physician, the American um, Medical Association. We are that that professional group for HR professionals. There are 310,000 members across the globe, literally, in 165 countries. While we're based in in Washington DC. We have offices in Dubai. We have offices, three offices in India. We're truly a global outfit uh, focused largely on, from a mission standpoint, representing the HR profession. But as of late, we've broadened our remit to really focus on all things work, workers, and the workplace. So it's it's a broader remit than just representing the HR profession. Interesting. You know, I've been to SHRM events over the years and met some really great people through it. I, I, one thing I, I want to go back, and this is just a personal interest one before we go into some of the book. Please. You've got this, you've got this fun background, all these different roles you've had, president CEO of the Thoroughgood Marshall College Fund, 
all these, you know, Blockbuster, Alamo, all these things. But I'm super interested about your time as general counsel and senior VP of HR at Paramount, the live entertainment group. Yes. Yes. Uh, we, so our charity, Child Rescue, that, you know, our listeners know about combating child trafficking, our first big donor was Sumner Redstone of Viacom. And really? Yeah, he gave God us like a million and a half dollars. It ran our organization for like the first six or seven years. It was a big deal. And so I've kind of been fascinated. I mean, besides that, I love all things movies anyways. I've got just kind of that extra interest. But, you know, the Viacom universe is, is wide and people have all sorts of different kinds of experiences. I'm interested in A, what, what you actually did and, and B, what some of the takeaways were from that experience that have, you know, you've brought to the rest of your career. Yeah, so I was, I'd like to say, acquired into Viacom. I was actually at Blockbuster, which was its own, you know, publicly traded company. And then we were acquired in 1993 by Viacom, 1994. And so they swooped all of these companies together. And to your point, it was MTV, Nickelodeon, Paramount, Blockbuster, you name it. We were all things entertainment. Sort of before Disney did all of its big uh, mega media company, we were it. And so I came in as the deputy general counsel at Blockbuster. Shortly after we sorted it all out, I then moved over to the Paramount side. And, and you know, the, sort of the, the way that we thought about Paramount at the time is there's motion picture. Everyone knows film, right? And then there's Paramount Television at the time. We had the UPN group and television stations, et cetera. And then there was this other business, which was live entertainment, everything non-motion picture and non-television. And so we owned theme parks. People didn't realize that, that we had Paramount's parks, uh, King's Dominion in Virginia, King's Island in Cincinnati, King's Winter, Winter's Wonderland in Toronto. So that was a big part of the business, which were Paramount's parks. And then we took on tour anything, the, the, the product that came out of television and film. So one of my most exciting projects was we built and created created a project at the Las Vegas Hilton called Star Trek The Experience, where you literally lived the Star Trek experience at a, and inside the, the facility. We also took, if you remember, the really important and biggest film of all times at the time, Titanic, <laughs> which was yeah. our product. And we took that on tour across the world, literally. literally. Yeah, so it was everything out of home entertainment was was in the division I served as general counsel and the head of HR. So I'm interested from an HR perspective. I uh, do you know that book Moneyball? Brad Pitt yes. was in the movie, right? For me, it's it's been interesting. You know, I get a I get to talk to such incredibly successful people on this show, and I'm a real book nerd. And it, over time, it just becomes more and more apparent that like the people who do things like Netflix, I don't know if you saw Reed Hastings books, yes. no, no rules, rules, but like this idea of like doing what it takes to not just get good people, but to like really get the absolute best people who could win you an Oscar. It, it yes. really is an unfair advantage. We hear, you know, Bill Gates talks about like those, the most prolific coders at Microsoft weren't worth, weren't worth like double the other coders weren't as productive as three times. They were like a hundred times more productive than the other coders, right. you know? And right. so it's fascinating to me to think about my own organization, other organizations in terms of like, what would it really take to get the, the people who are the best of the best at what we're doing next? So I'm interested in, in live entertainment, in theme parks and taking Titanic on tour what like who were you trying to attack what 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 was the rare talent you were trying to get to come over to you guys so you know it's funny it depended so for example we wanted the absolute best costume designers you could not mm. take something like titanic the movie and have a humdrum experience i mean what gave it all of those amazing awards was the costume design cinematography so Literally, in every one of our roles, we had to have the best. But that also applied in finance because, you know, the reason there's some great movies that are flops because of the way the, the deal is organized, right? The filming and the, I'm sorry, the filming, the financing of these deals. So what I loved about being in the media business is we were willing to pay for whatever the best was, and that's, that's a, you don't see that in the rest of the world, right? In most of corporate America, they're like these, these salary bands or this or that. And mm -hmm. I think the breakout 
for companies that really nail it, they say, I'll pay for what it's worth, right? And I'm not going to have the traditional kind of framework. I was talking to someone at Google, Laszlo Bach, in fact, who, who was you know, the head of people operations at Google for years. And, and he said, when we wanted someone, it wasn't a debate about how much we were going to pay. It was what does it take the person to, to come here and feel like they're engaged? I mean, that, that's just what it is. We, we, and, and, and I got to tell you, you took a lot of that from professional sports. You will, this idea that in football, the linebacker and the quarterback should make the same amount of money. No, you are worth what the market says you're worth and what it's going to take you to come here and deliver your best. So part of this, and a lot of folks listening here may you know, struggle forever. We've been told, oh, money's not the driver. Well, that's not true. The most talented people, and let's be clear, you've got to define what talent is and how it operates and how productive it is, efficient, et cetera. But those people are priceless and you've got to treat them that way. And it starts with compensation which in most of the world is like, well, no, but if we pay this person this, then the person who's in a comparable job has to make this. That is why most organizations can't get out of their, their way because we're so busy trying to treat the true marquee star talent the way we treat the average people. And we, we struggle with saying to someone, except in sports and in media and entertainment, or sales. Saying, no, no, or sales, that's right, precisely. We don't have a problem saying this is a star and we're going to pay star money and the rest of you won't get it because they have something unusually uh, talented about themselves that differentiates them, period, full stop. And we don't apologize for it. We just do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting when you think like, even if you're paying triple, but the person can do 10x, like it's a smoking it, deal. Absolutely. And that's what we, you know, I talk with my colleagues in HR a lot about that. And, and, and a lot of my opinion and my thinking around this is informed by coming from the media world where you're nickel and diming. To your point, if the person is really worth 10 times, then pay them 10 times. And if they're really that smart, they know their value. And they're not going to take seven times if they're worth 10 times. They're just not going to do it. Every once in a while, you run across someone who'll go work for a nonprofit or, you know, a charity like your organization. You do that for reasons other than money. But by and large. But no, listen, that, that's hard. We had, a, we had a guy on the show, good friend of mine, who used to run our charity for us. He was, he was over at Naval Special Warfare. He was on the boat cruise. He's Swick. Got out, decided he hadn't served enough, went back in the military, went to the, the highest level, you know, the most classified top counterterrorism unit in the world in, that's part of the U.S. Army. And, and when he got out of that, he came to work for us. And he just really believed in the mission and stuff. And then, like, he's married, he's got kids. And when he got an offer for double, we didn't fault him for, for leaving. You know what I mean? He's still a big supporter and he's, he volunteers and helps. But, you know, like... He, he had a big heart for the issue and he did a ton of good and he's also got a family to feed. And when the offer is double, it's hard not to do you mean that's tough to turn down. And, and you can't guilt people into to not doing that. And that's what we're coming to. As I said, a lot of the thinking has been people don't work for money. I mean, let's be honest, yes, we do. <laughs> Unless you're some trust fund, baby. At the end of the day, that does drive you. Now, depending upon where we are in our lives, to your point, I've got a kid going to college. Well, I'm more motivated by money than I might when I'm 60 and not the kids out of college, right? There are different points of our lives where money becomes less, but compensation really matters. And I'm really glad that you brought this up in the context of a nonprofit because it really matters there as well. And oh, the yeah. thinking is if you want great work to be done, then the people have to be compensated responsibly. Yeah. Have you seen Dan Pilata's TED Talk about like, I've, it's like one of the most viewed TED Talks, millions of views about how much good we are not getting done in this country because we have this societal opinion that if you're working in a nonprofit, then you shouldn't make good money. And just how incredibly <laughs> criticized people are for paying high salaries for top talent. And it's so disconnected from like, yes, but how much good did they do? You know, it's like, no, that's more than I make. You've paid too much. I couldn't, you know, it, it's a it's a real problem in doing good when you can't and check the top talent because you're criticized for paying what they're worth. And let me tell you, that is, it, it's, I'm glad we're talking about this, a whole bunch of things I want to talk about, but I'm specifically because it's almost if it's bad, the best talent, no matter where they deliver their talent, 
expect to be compensated fairly. Now I understand market rate. that. Right. Market rate. And market is what it takes to get the person. I had, I worked with the guy at Paramount Pictures, John Dolgen, who once told me, I said, you know, I asked him, I said, what's the right number for someone? He said, you know, throw away all of those charts and everything. Give them a dollar more than it takes to make them happy. That was just very <laughs> simple. That's a great <laughs> rule, though. It was the best rule, and it was so simple, but it was hilarious. He said, a dollar more than it, makes, than it takes to make them happy. The rest of the stuff doesn't matter, because no matter how talented someone is and how committed they are to you, if they don't feel like they're not being treated fairly and compensated fairly, then they're out, you know, and there's, it's just a moment before someone else comes around. So yeah, I think that's, that's realistic. And I understand, I do, I want to be honest. I, I also understand the optics. I'm on the board of the American Red Cross, for example, and we are a disaster relief organization. And most of the money that's given to us is charitable, right? So you, you understand the optics of people saying, oh, you're going to pay your CEO or X. But at the end of the day, uh, this is a three plus billion dollar business, you know, in corporate America mm -hmm. should be paid 10 times that. And you expect her to deliver at the same level as if she were working with the financial services company. You know, you expect mm -hmm. the same level of execution and professional expertise. So why do you think it's OK not to at least pay them? You know, you have to live the life of a pauper to do good. It's a mistake. Uh, I tell you, it's actually one of the reasons that we we keep pursuing more social enterprises instead yes. of pushing as hard as we could on the nonprofit Yes, for that same reason, because I can get the good people. If I do good through the business, I can afford the right people and nobody criticizes. In fact, they, they're like happy. You're giving some of your profits to good cause. And I, we still do, we still do the charitable side, but we actually do a lot of our charitable work through the for-profit side so we can get the right people to do it. Well, uh, what were you going to say? No, no, I, I violently agree. I mean, I just, I think it's really sad that people make decisions. And, and by the way, it's not limited to the nonprofit space. In business, back to my sort of seminal point, in business, if you want the best talent, then you've got to treat them like the best talent. And no one complains about the ridiculously, absurdly high salaries of media or, uh, you know, athletes or, you know, other types mm -hmm. of personalities. So frankly, in industry, when someone, to your point, is worth 10 times, they're 10 times more productive than another person who does theoretically the same job, then you've got to compensate them, period. Yeah. I'm interested at Sherm, as, as, you know, CEO, what does growth, what does growth look like? What does, you know, when you guys are setting, you know, your new targets of what you want to accomplish next year, what, like, what do you guys do? What's, what's your, where are you trying to improve? Where are you trying to grow? What are you, what are you doing at Sherm? So three areas that are really drivers for us, and they're KPIs, but not KPIs in the traditional sense. They are exact, they're the key performance indicators that say we're doing good at, at our work. Number one is members. Presumably, if you do really great work and your members value what you do for them, then you get more of them and the ones who are there come back. So member acquisition and retention. Every year, our goal is to grow the business. As long as the HR profession is growing, and it is clearly, and you don't have to go very far to hear people talk about talent as their number one challenge, then we should be growing. So member acquisition and retention. Number two, though, is a little, may, a little more sort of amorphous. It's, it's brand and reputation. The fact that I've been given the opportunity to join you today on what is like a really big deal of a podcast. I mean, I'm going to tell you now, everyone knows you're a superstar and that this, like, it means the work that we're doing is being recognized outside of the four walls of our building and that others are saying, hmm, that's an organization that needs their voice, their POV needs to be heard and amplified. So we do a lot of work. How do you know what success looks like? It's getting opportunities like this to speak with influencers like you, which says, and every year we need more of them to, to essentially, you know, get the word out and, and really build out Sherm's reputation and brand. And then the third area is when, and this is again, one of those really tough ones to count. We certify HR professionals. One of our number one tasks is to elevate the HR profession. 
And we believe the way that you do that is to improve the overall capability set and the performance of HR professionals, no matter where they work. And so certification is a big part of what we do. We need to not, you know, there's very low barriers to entry into HR. Anyone who says they want to be an HR person can be if you can convince someone to hire you. It's not like the law degree or the medical degree or architect, you know, where you have to have specialized training and licensure. So what we've got to do is say, okay, the people who come in have got to operate at the level that business executives expect. And so we've got to certify them so that at a minimum, they understand what good HR looks like. So we do those three things. Certify people, ensure that people are equipped to do their job, provide a lot of member services, the value to our members so that they keep coming and more of they tell their friends and we grow and and then build our reputation as a credible voice for all things work, workers in the workplace. We do that. That's what I get judged on. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated on how people's, you know, for lack of a word, how their business models work, you know, and what the, yes, yes, you know, what, what they get measured on. I can tell you real quickly, we have a very, when you look at our revenue, so certification I just mentioned is a significant part of our pie. The next big thing is we, we do a lot of events and they're educational training events, but as you said, you've come to some SHRM conferences. We do conferences as large as 20,000 people at one sitting. And then we have smaller seminars and sessions. So we have a significant live entertainment, as I call it. It's edutainment business. Uh, that That is where we drive a lot of revenue and then membership dues. So those are the three specific key indicators that we say, you know, if you drive those, then you, you, you make good money. Yeah. And then you yeah. can pay good money to get the best talent. Sure. Well, I want to go back to the book. I'm interested, you know, I've met some I've met some really exceptional HR folks and I've met a number of folks who feel quite disconnected from entrepreneurship and and business, you know? Yes. And I'm interested when you think about HR folks who really get business, like they don't think about themselves as this walled off separate thing. They actually, they're, they're much more integrated into like, no, really we are st- I like, they have that like responsibility. Like I am helping staff the pro athlete team here. I'm interested in, in who you feel like is innovative at that or, or what innovation stories you've seen in, in HR that you could share with us. Well, and so here's, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an answer, but I, I obviously want to, so much of this depends upon where your organization is in its life cycle. Okay. Mm. And I say that to say when we become successful, big, et cetera, the bureaucracy sets in and really talented HR professionals who know better have to service that bureaucracy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that. We saw that happen with GE. There was a time when as they had the top HR professionals on the planet, I mean, it was phenomenal. They found people, they developed people, they paid them properly. It was just well done. And they, they had some of the best HR people going. And then they became so big and they got in their own way. Some of the companies that, on the other hand, are doing their, in their cycle, their growth, they're in a growth spurt right? You're seeing the Netflix of the world. You're seeing, listen, let's get real down to it, the Chick-fil-A's of the world. I mean, they have just, they have people in these roles. Chipotle is another example where they get that they've got to recruit an HR person who is not there to practice HR per se, but whose job is to ensure that the organization has the absolute best talent that it can put on the field. And it's not just getting them there, but keeping there, keeping keeping them there, keeping them engaged, et cetera. And there are a few organizations who are getting this right, but I tell you, the people who are really nailing it are small companies because they have agility, the adaptability. They, they are actually willing to innovate in their hiring practices. So they're not limited by, okay, here's the salary band and I can't pay outside of this or that. They just, they're scrappy and they say, we only win if we have the best players on the field. It's the only way we win. And and so the people I would mention, you wouldn't even know the names of their companies, mm. but one day they will be super big because they're hiring an HR, HR people who understand there's laws and compliance related stuff that you've got to check the boxes on. But ultimately they're number one. When I thought about this, when I was at, at, at Paramount and I mentioned John Belgian, my job 
was to find the scour the earth and find the next LeBron James of whatever <laughs> role I was upon, whatever mm-hmm. role it was. That was my job. And then I deal with the money next, but find the person. And when you do that, the organization thrives. And then HR is at the center of the business. It's not just some support function. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, tell us one of your favorite stories from the book. Wow. So there's so many that anecdotes that come out of that book and I was trying to have it be conversational, but I guess the one I talk a lot about my daughter and how that I think one of my favorite stories is how she, she basically, I've had to make her understand the value of work and the, and, and how being my daughter and having privilege to some degree, a lot of degree, she, she's got to get at it and make it happen and be smart and all that. So one of the, one of the stories that I, I share with people is the time that I spend making my number one draft pick. And that's my daughter. And so parenting, I learned so much from my day-to-day work, from the employees that I interact with. And I find myself often saying, hmm, I wonder what this particular employee's parents did to them or, you know, or how they responded when they were, because this is, this is how it's showing up at work right now. And so I spend a lot of time in the book, you'll see references to this little one and how I feel sorry for her because she's actually everything that goes wrong at work or in the workplace and oftentimes what goes well I immediately uh, bring it home and say, okay, this is going to impact or influence my my parenting. How old is she? She's 11. 11. And as her, like her dad growing, going on 31, right? But yeah, it's, it's so much of what I'm learning about how human beings develop and who they become is through that of being a father. I'm a single father, by the way. Um, uh, not proud because that was not by design, but ultimately I'm divorced and I have a kid and I'm actually the custodial parent. So I raise this little girl on my own and it's a lot of fun. That's, that's interesting. I, I have four kids. My, my youngest is 10 and uh, it's interesting how many business books I've made them read. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too. And she rolls her eyes every time I come in and I'm trying to explain these concepts, but you know, if we don't do that, especially I have a girl. I, are your your kids? Boys, I got two, girls, bo- two boys, two girls. Okay, it is so important when you think about. For example, we talk a lot about the importance of women feeling like they can achieve and being successful in corporate America. We as men, particularly as fathers, a lot of what we do right now will largely dictate the trajectory of that kid. Now, obviously, DNA and all of that stuff, you know, who people are is who they are. But what we do, the lessons, the approaches, how we teach them to react and respond to things, including being exposed to business early on, is really funny. And I do that. My daughter just rolls her eyes. She's like, can, can I just do what other kids do? And I said, no. <laughs> yeah, listen, I, I talk to them all the time. My This week, I just had a conversation with my 17-year-old daughter. I think we're going to start another YouTube channel called sledboarding.com, which is like snowmobile up, snowboard down. We we live on the side of a mountain by Park City, Utah. And we, yes. we moved there so that we could go sledboarding out the backyard into the national forest up to these, you know, 10,000 foot elevation cool. peaks. And I just said, listen, like that industry does not have a lot of options. Like your chances of becoming sponsored are way better than your brother's. There are so few women in that field. That's a huge advantage for you. Like this is such a leverage opportunity because they just, they would love to open up that market. They'd love to be selling more snowmobiles and more split boards and more stuff to young women. And you don't have a lot of competition. Like if this is somewhere you want to go, like you should take advantage of, of how desperate corporate America is to have people like you in their ads. And she's like really excited about it. So we've been planning what we're going to, you know, what we're going to do that hasn't already been done on YouTube and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I've tried hard to raise entrepreneurs. We'll see if it, we'll see if it turns out that way. Well, and if you're anything like me, one of the things I struggle with a lot is trying to figure out how not to give them so much, you know, because we've been fortunate and we have the ability to provide things for them. And I struggle with, but how much of the greatness comes out of struggle, right? Like, do you know who David Rubenstein is? Yes, of course. What were you going to say? You just actually got his daughter. His daughter and I were recently connected, and I, I oh, remember really? the Washington. 
Yeah. And she was talking about it. She's like, listen, my dad's like, you've got to earn this, period. You know, you got to go make it happen. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting when he talks about, you know, I think he's worth maybe $4 billion right now. And he gets up and says, like, listen, there's not a lot. If you go down the line of Nobel Prize winners, I don't know any that are like the children of billionaires. Like, That's my kids have got some great things, but there's also some things that were an advantage for me. Like, my dad was a postman. My dad delivered That's the mail. And I can't remember his mom did, but it was relatively blue collar, you know, and he's like, there's like, they're exactly what you just said. There are some distinct advantages in struggle. And uh, yes. as much as we dislike it at the time and me, as much as anyone else, my wife is always saying things like, well, maybe this will be really great. Maybe God's trying to use you later so you can help people who are going through it. I'm like, That's not what I want to hear right now, honey. That's not you know? the point. <laughs> That's not the point. I just want it to be easier right now. Right. That's right. So I'm actually interested in that in terms of developing staff. You know, I yes. I love the, you know, Delta Force, SEAL Team Six, you know, the little boy in me who still wants to be Jason Bourne, right? And <laughs> they work so hard on selection. And then yes. they train you like crazy so that, you know, it's basically like upside down to the rest of the military. Instead of like the general, the colonel who gets to call the shots, it's like an upside down pyramid where they train those individual enlisted guys so well, they can trust them to make their own decisions. And, you know, a lot of times officers are like clearing things out of the way so the enlisted guys can get the job done instead of barking and saying, you're going to do this and armchair quarterbacking from 3000 miles away on a webcam, you know, but I think about that idea of with our own staff, like how do you attract the absolute superstars to come over? And then how do you create the right amount of struggle to, to help them further reach their potential? And any thoughts about not pushing them so far, they want to quit on you, but not making it so easy that they're not actually improving kind of the balance beams. Yeah. And it's a tough one. So let me start with selection tools. There mm -hmm. is a huge debate and it's, it's by the way, a perennial one over whether or not selection tools are good or bad. Okay. And, and especially in the work. And can I clarify when you say selection tools, can you give us some examples of what that psychometric testing Psychometric testing. So sitting down and, and looking at people's true strengths, determining if they have the resilience, if they have the grit, if they have the smarts, frankly, you know, to do certain things. We're all good at something, but we're most of most of us are not good at most things, right? You just got to find that thing or two that someone's really uh, gifted at. And what we struggle with, and this is frankly the the thing that drives me crazy, is none of us want to acknowledge that all of us can't be, none of us, I should say differently, can be whatever we want to be. It is the most ridiculous statement when someone says to a kid, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, that's, that's not accurate. Like I could want forever to be, you know, Michael Jordan, and he could have personally tutored me, but I was never going to be a great athlete. And it was stupid. Someone should have said, and they do. In sports, we have no problem saying, you can't run this fast, you're, you can't jump this fast. You're, you're too tall to be a jockey. You're, you're, right. You're too, right. You're too skinny to be no, a linebacker. Like, right. We have no problem telling people that and actually hurting their feelings. And we, remember, in grade school teams, you don't talk about a humiliating experience. You go out and you give your own and then they say five guys made the team. And you <laughs> yeah, I went through that a few times. Right. Me too. But what happens is when we advance this to 22 years old, coming out of college, for example, we are unwilling to have those to go through that same set of rigor, that same set that says, let's figure out if you have what it takes to be, you know, a Navy SEAL or a Ranger or whatever, right, to operate at the highest levels. We're unwilling to weed people out. In fact, the debate is, well, that's very, very exclusive. And we're all trying to be inclusive. And I said, no, no, guys, I think we're trying to be inclusive, but we also, we want to win, right? And I don't think those things are mutually uh, exclusive, to borrow the term, but but this notion that we are unwilling to sit down as hiring managers and determine what does great look like and then screen for that. Screen for that, I mean, and I, I understand I can hear people now say, well, then that means you won't have enough, you won't have underrepresented minorities. Yes, you will. The thing about God is pretty you know, egalitarian when it comes to it. You've got to look for them, right? You, you had to find, the NBA had to find and did find LeBron James when he was in the sixth or seventh grade, right? They find this talent and you groom it and you prepare it. That's your second part of your question. So finding it, making sure that they have the ability to do it. And then just, I mean, like nothing you've ever seen preparing. 
there's nothing that can prepare you for this, but just hard work and preparation and failure and struggle and all of that. I just interviewed a couple of months back, Michael Phelps, and he Hmm. said something that forever will stick with me. He said, the difference between you've worked all for four years to get to the Olympics and the winner uh, is sometimes, you know, uh, you know, what do you say? Like a 10th of a second faster than Mm -hmm. the next person. So every millisecond matters, how you turn your head, what you do, et cetera. And you can only get that by practice, just intense practice. And we are unwilling to do that. We, ex- we allow in the workplace in the name of, we don't want to be so hard. Well, you're not going to create superstars at scale if you don't have rigor in your selection process, as well as your preparation or your training and development process. It just, there's no other way to get to excellence but can I, through that. Can I say how happy I'm that the CEO of Sherm just said that? Because I have, <laughs> I have been exceedingly frustrated at times when we are working with the head of HR at Greystoke Advisors, my one company, we're working with the head of HR at some firm and we're talking about, okay, what are the, what are the objectives that the business wants to see grow out of these people? And they give us this list and we, we, we work hard to really understand what they're looking for. And we talk about, we talk about, you know, the concepts of, of like myelination and neuroplasticity and how mastery is formed and right. And, right. and they're all on board and they're all on board. And then we talk about like, you know, what would need to be, you know, meaningful repetitions outside the comfort zone to develop skill. Yes. And all of a sudden they're like, Ooh, I don't know if everybody will think that's much fun. Yeah. And we're like, no, it's not. What? <laughs> I didn't know we were, I thought, I thought we were on like the development side. I didn't know we were like on the perks team. Are we, are we designing perks because they did a good job or, or is this like how we grow them into something? And that confusion has unfortunately caused me to do less work with a lot of HR folks out of just frustration of like, whoa, I think we got that confused. Is this the perk or is this the development? So well, I, anyways. I talk about that a lot. I'm glad you, I know you, but I got to chime in there. It's really, I will say this in fairness to them. The HR okay. practitioners that I know are sitting in an environment where there are all of these other factors. So yes, I want the absolute best. I want to scout the earth. I want to do everything to find them. And then I want to put them through a rigorous process of development preparation, right? And then there are things like, okay, and, I'm, and I want to make sure I say this respectfully because I know people will go lose their minds, but then there are these other factors. Well, we want this form of diversity, geographic diversity. We want this, we want that. We want people to feel good. Well, guess what? A lot of this doesn't feel good. <laughs> it just doesn't. That's the way it is. It's supposed to be painful in some ways, not to kill you because that was the question you asked, but taking you to the brink of what you thought you couldn't do. Someone said, do your absolute best and then go a little further. I mean, so best isn't <laughs> even good enough, right? And we, we, we're, to be fair to a lot of the HR professionals, many of them are prepared to have that sort of rigor and, and demand out of, out of their prospects. But the broader societal sort of expectations of an employer that lend itself, you are yeah, the trash you know, that's, from an employer brand. Yeah, well, as you're saying that, it, that's probably unfair of me to say, because I, I'm thinking about two organizations right now. One's about two, two of our clients, pre- previous clients. One is about 4,000 staff. One is about 10,000 staff. And mm-hmm. one of them had just completed their third merger. And... Mm-hmm. Things were, there was a lot up for grabs. There's a little chaos in the marketplace because of it. They just became the number one firm in the marketplace. And they, there was deep accountability on performance, right? Yes. And in the other one, it was there, the, it really is a failing of leadership. Like I, when I talked to them about like, you know, what happens with the growth goals? Like how bad do you guys have to do before people lose jobs? They're like, oh, nobody worries about that. Like we... <laughs> I mean, we do have a joke around here, like, will the growth be 4% or 5% this year? Because that's what it is every year. I mean, nobody, yeah, like, there's not, totally. there aren't, like, targets that people are held accountable to and stuff. And as we're saying this, I'm thinking, like, yeah, it's actually the failing of leadership of the HR team that they've created in the environment where the HR isn't being measured on performance increases. And actually, there's a lot of not measuring happening all over the business, not HR. So it's probably unfair to me to lay it at their feet. It's just that's who I was dealing with. So I... So that's where my first no. focus. And, and it's an opportunity for us, to be fair. I mean, you're not the first person I've heard it from. And frankly, as a CEO, I've had that moment in my last three assignments where I'm like, guys, 
even looking at, I'm now the CEO of HR people and I'm like, my God, to do better. And the frustration that I'm hearing in your voice is something that's echoed to me constantly. I just want to win. That's what the CEOs are saying. The business leaders are saying, I want to win. And I know in a knowledge-based economy, the only way that I can really win and differentiate myself is through people. And so I need you to be as serious about this as I am about this business. And that means selecting the right people and preparing them. And that is the tall task, but it's the world of the 21st century HR people. The people who are going to be successful will have the HR ops, like, right, payroll and, and compliance, and you'll do all of that. But selecting the right people, motivating them, preparing them for future opportunities development is going to be the holy grail. That's what success is going to look like. Yeah, I love it. Okay, tell us another of your favorite stories from the book. Because I wrote so many of those, you know, let me see. I'm going to pass on that one. Talk to me about something else. I'm interested, you know, we didn't even talk about being, you know, your your role being appointed by the president. That's a big deal. Yes. What, what did you actually do? Well, tell people what the role is and what that involved. So I took two appointments and it's really interesting. I was uh, very, very active in Hillary Clinton's campaign. Janet Reno was a partner at my law firm. So I was a big Clinton guy. And then I took two appointments from President Donald Trump. That was really interesting. So I'm sort of all over <laughs> so the place, you, right? You saw, all, you saw all sides. Okay. All sides of it, right? Well, so the last three years, or the prior three years before the end of so 2017 through 20, I did two things. One, I was the chairman's, the advisor to the president of the United States on historically black colleges and universities. They call them HBCUs, HBCUs. And so literally advising the White House on how to think about these institutions from an investment standpoint, more importantly, Importantly, on from a supply standpoint. So, you know, supply and demand, like industry, there's huge demand for diverse talent. The question is, how can we increase the output mm -hmm. from HBCUs in particular? So that was the role that I served in as the chairman of the board of advisors to the president of the United States. Then I joined something called and was appointed to the Workforce Policy Advisory Board. Let me tell you, 25 of the country's biggest CEOs. I mean, Jenny Rometty from IBM, Tim Cook from Apple. I mean, it was the who's who. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, it was a really, really impressive group of, of the folks. I uh, FedEx's Fred Smith. I mean, it's just the who's who. And we were tasked with working through the Secretary of Commerce and Ivanka Trump to come up with removing barriers for success in the workplace of the future, much of what you're talking about right now, you know, and it it impacted K through 12 education because that ultimately is how we start this pipeline, right? And all of the things that we needed to do so that the American enterprise could continue to be the best in the world. And for three years, these really, really smart people and me, we sat down, we met in person and we spent countless hours just thinking about what are the things we can do to think differently. Talk about reset. You know, are we willing, for example, to seed the fact that college is not for everyone and that it's not even a path for really sometimes the most talented people right immediately out of school, out of high school, don't need to do the college route. There are other ways to this success. And so we've used the degree as a proxy for smart. Well, maybe that's not the best way to do it. In fact, we know it's not necessarily the best way to do it. What are, how can we do experiential learning? Like how is it just sitting in the front of a you know, classroom being taught the way I was in law school, you know, the Socratic method, da, da, da. Maybe there's a better and different way to create lawyers. So we just explored all types of ways work workers in the workplace. So those are the two roles. And it was fascinating because you're doing this against the backdrop of an incredibly unpopular president who's actually doing some good policy things. So it was fun. It was mm -hmm. actually, I love a good challenge and that was it. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I'm interested. Any observations? Let, let's go through some of those people you got to interact with. Tim Cook, any observations yes. from your time with him? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've never actually met someone who was more focused and who had, who knew exactly what he wanted for his business. Like there's clarity and there's like crazy clarity. And Tim Cook, you could just, I mean, look through those, those spectacles and you'd say, this person knows exactly what Apple is going to be. And, and, and it's just a level of discipline as we talk about this, like nothing else. And they hire the smartest people and have a very clear culture by the way, and it's not for everyone, believe me, but but I was really impressed with him. Jenny Rometty 
on the other hand, and I don't mean this to say not that she wasn't that way, but I've she, a very much a big picture thinker. And she was, was she IBM, able to, I'm sorry. I, I, IBM, yes, yeah. IBM CEO and chairman for years. And what, what she brought to it was, while yes, there's a focus on delivering the results, but she really did bring more empathy to the conversation. And mm. not that women do this better than men, but you could definitely feel her approach having a bit more of, yes, we've got to deliver. And yes, we've got a huge company that has to survive and all of that good stuff. But there was empathetic leadership at a level that I hadn't seen. And well, what's an example big, of that? So we were sitting down talking about recruiting kids from, let's say, disadvantaged, less privileged environments. And the conversation went from, whoa, 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 you know, if they can't get it done, they can't get it done too bad. And that was a lot of us. Like, I need talent now. I don't have time to develop a kid who doesn't know multiplications in the, in the 10th grade. You know, I just, I'm over it. And she said, whoa, we can't throw those people away. In fact, I think we've got to find a way to catch them up because we need them. Like, on one hand, this isn't just feel-good stuff. It's not sympathy. She said, I understand being myself first generation, what it means to not have the privilege. And this isn't limited to gender or race or whatever. It's just they didn't have the lives that many of us around this table can provide to our children. So the empathetic response is, let's not throw them away. Uh, Let's figure out how we can lift them up. And still, we're not saying, and she would always say, I'm not saying sacrifice on quality. I'm saying do all that we can to ensure that we can get quality from places that are different, that we haven't historically ponds that we've not fished from. It's interesting. You know, I think about that. My my wife is this like, you know, five foot 10, gorgeous blonde, and you would think came from similar backgrounds to to me or to maybe a lot of people on the show. But, you know, she grew up in apartment, you know, apartment complexes full of people on welfare and drugs. And, you know, her her mom was a fourth generation trafficking victim and had broken the cycle. So it didn't happen to my wife. But there's a lot of after effects of 100 years of no dads. You know, I'm the first I'm the first dad to stick around in 100 years in that family line. And, you know, she said, she said, until her mom remarried later, later on, the only people that she even knew who had gone to college were her school teachers. That's the only people she knew. So like college was like, it wasn't, it wasn't in the plan. Like she wasn't even thinking about it. None of her friends were thinking about it, you know? And when we first got married, we were down in Huntington Beach, California. And she, I was at, I was going, I ended up at City. She ended up at Deutsche Bank. But before that, she worked at a youth shelter and it was mostly kids from Watts and Compton. And she just would repeatedly like take them on tours to, to colleges and, and talk to them about like, this is real. And because of what she looked like, they just assumed you have no idea what our life is like. And then she'd be like, well, I was actually the only you know, I was the only white girl in my, on my block. And right. we had our Rottweiler stolen at gunpoint. And, you know, my only uncle was murdered in a drug deal. And, you know, and all of a sudden they would, they would talk to her, you know, and she just night after night, she would sit there and, and try to give them this feeling of like people from where you came from. Don't, don't like your past doesn't have to determine your future. It's actually like one of my favorite things Kevin Hart has ever said about like, he's like, we need people like me going back to my neighborhood in Philly and explaining like, don't take that, don't take that credit card offer. Do, (laughs) do, do this, you know? Anyways, I'm, I'm fascinated with the subject because I guess I just have so many great people on this show whose resume did not have them pointed at, you know, their, their early life resume did not have them pointed at what they achieved. And it's just like irrequivocal to me. Our past don't have to determine our future, but well, they don't, sometimes they, we need they don't. Some, we, sometimes we need to push. Sometimes we need a little help to get on the trajectory, but, but not sympathy and not, not pity is mm-hmm. more different, differently said. And that's one of the struggles that, that I, you know, you want to push, you talked about it earlier. How do you, when do you not break someone? Well, you know, the fascinating thing is that when you see people who've become inordinately like successful, they all will describe, I've described at that moment where I thought I can't do anymore. And then I pushed through. And so we do have to build this level of grit and resilience in people uh, at, no matter what your circumstance, because the fact of the matter is people who, are, who, have, who don't know multiplications at 10th grade actually can catch up. They mm-hmm. actually can and master calculus, but they have got to, I can't make you want it. I can't make you want anything, right? What I can do, <laughs> and, and that's a hard pill to swallow, well, right? 
it's such a good point. And I know we have to finish this interview at some time. Write another book so we can have you back on, okay? <laughs> love it, love it. So speaking of making kids listen to business books, uh, we were up in Washington State building one of these, learning how we were building a prototype for these tiny house adventure cabins for a real estate fund. So I let my kids skip a week yes. of school, just do it, just do it <laughs> online. And so we went and cut these big trees down and worked at the mill that we've got going and stuff. And, and on the drive home, it's like 14 hours to, to, yep. to Utah. We listened to The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, which I mm-hmm. recommend yep. to absolutely everyone, right? And he's talking about the KIPP schools. What, what is that? Knowledge in, do you remember what it stands for? Uh, I don't know the acronym. I know KIPP. <laughs> anyways, it's just awesome where they start kids young and they build yes. that desire. Like they start talking to them in like the third grade about what year they're going to start college. You, you're like in the third grade and you get called yes. like the class of 2031. That's right. And like, that's how you're referred to for like the next six years, you know? Yes. And they, I just am so, it's very optimistic for me, for our country, that that program has caught on, that it's been growing so much. And they take these kids and they build that desire that you're talking about. And then they ship them off to these universities together. And like Kipsters get to hang out when things are tough at college. And they've got that built in, they've got a little bit of a built in uh, safety net group, safety net. right? That's- Anyways, I just, I'm so impressed that we have people like this, like that in this country. And it sounds like your group was, was working to promote more of those type of things. It was. And it's funny, you talk, that's the social entrepreneurship that is really interesting. Of course, uh, people attack Kip and anyone, it's so funny, like, God forbid, they're paying people X, their CEO makes, I'm like, why do you care? Is, does the company benefit from this, what they've done? Why are, are the kids so from the hood getting degrees right. and inspiring right. everybody on their block? That's like, right. Is that and not so worth paying for No, it's not. People get, you know, really focused on the wrong stuff. And because I'm on your show, I'm going to say stuff. But no, (laughs) I think that's right. As we think about, ultimately, seriously, as we think about the workforce of the future, and that's what the book is really all about, is we really, we had to stop and say, in some ways, the pandemic was good for us. It made us all, as opposed to a pause where you pushed the button and you come back and pick up just where you left off, we stopped. We revisited everything. Like, you know, before, if you told someone you can actually hire someone remotely, you can onboard them remotely, you can fire people remotely. Three years ago, if you'd said, oh, yeah, the company called someone and fired them over the phone, they think you're a horrible employee. Mm-hmm. And now we've proven you can actually do this in a humane way. It doesn't require the old way of doing anything. That was the gift of the pandemic. How we how we teach people learning and development, it's asynchronous now. We've, you know, if you think even when, and I'm, I'm always mindful of this, MBA programs. So we've had online type programs, but there was always an E. Like if you did an MBA at a school and University of Chicago was notorious, like you got an MBA, but if you went to the executive MBA, which meant you didn't come, they actually called it something different. Like why did you have to call it an E-MBA? It's an MBA. The fact that you did it virtually should not make a difference. But all of so much of what we did was because... We, we thought differently. There was this two-tier system that we designed. And now we've said you can learn fully virtual and actually with a very high uh, quality education, you can receive it virtually. So the pandemic to me, and that's what Reset is all about, is about being willing to challenge every notion, even the ones I'm not talking 30, 40, 50 years ago. I'm saying things that you and ways that you operated five years ago. Are we willing to abandon that and say there actually could be an innovative way to achieve the same or even better goals? That's what the book is all about. I love it. Everybody, please go to Audible and get your own copy. If you're one of those please weird do. people who like paper books, I guess you can go to Amazon. Connect with Johnny on LinkedIn or, or go to his website, johnnyctaylorjr.com. Johnny, this has, been a really, this has been a really fun conversation for me. I appreciate you making the time. Well, the pleasure was all mine and, and best to those four babies. The 17-year-old in particular. All right. Be well. Okay. Bye, everyone.